I think uh, most of you are probably aware that uh, this week is the 500th anniversary of uh, the Reformation on October uh, 31st, Tuesday, 500 years ago. Uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, the church back then, the church door back then, was kind of like a, a modern-day blog posting, right? If you had something you wanted to share, if you had something that you were concerned about, you put it on the door, and it kind of invited debate, kind of like uh, blogs uh, do today. And uh, Martin Luther, uh, I don't know how much you know about him, but he started out as a lawyer, and so it's important to kind of know that background when you think about uh, the whole Reformation and his part in it. But he started out as a lawyer, and then he became a monk because he could never get enough satisfaction of assurance of his salvation. He was never quite sure that God, you know, really loved him. He was very conscious of the fact that uh, God was righteous and God is just and that we're not and that God judges unrighteousness. And um, he always uh, felt uh, like he would never quite measured up. And so uh, he started out as a lawyer, entered a monastery, and uh, he became so obnoxious in the monastery because he was constantly confessing, trying to think about every single thing that he could possibly have done wrong that offended God. And he was constantly confessing that finally the monastery sent him to Wittenberg to teach at a university, a new university uh, that was built in Wittenberg. And so he taught there Romans and Galatians, among other things, but it was from his study of the Bible uh, that he realized that the church was off-base. And that's why he began to challenge uh, some of the issues if you were a Christian 500 years ago and you wanted to go to church, the only church you could go to in all of Europe was the Roman Catholic Church. It's not like you had a choice. It's not like you could go around. The only church that existed 500 years ago uh, was the Roman Catholic Church. And so the Reformation itself uh, started with this. At least that's uh, where people have kind of put the historical beginning of it in 1517. But the Reformation became a complex movement uh, with a lot of moving pieces and a lot of different people and a number of issues that were uh, addressed, many moving parts over a number of years. But all of it started out to reform the Roman Catholic Church, uh, hence the name Reformation. And that was the goal of these people. Now, the key issue for Martin Luther uh, that was kind of the tipping point for him um, the key issue was that of purgatory. Uh, most people back then believed <clears throat> that purgatory was a place of torment where people went after they died, okay, uh, went to purgatory uh, to be purged, purgatory, purged of their sins uh, before they would be qualified to go to heaven. And so I would tell you that lots of people today still believe in purgatory. And um, for Luther... Uh, when he went to that church at the, uh, in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, there was a Dominican friar there named uh, uh, Johann Tetzel. Tetzel. And uh, he was selling indulgences. An indulgence was a promise from the Pope that reduced your time in purgatory. And so you could buy an, an indulgence for your relatives or your friends who had died and so forth, and it would help them to get through purgatory uh, faster. Uh, they actually had a little advertising jingle that uh, was used to sell these indulgences. 
And it went like this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Okay? And so that's what they would use to kind of sell these indulgences. And Luther uh, just couldn't take it anymore and protested against the church selling indulgences uh, in an attempt to call the church to task on this particular issue. But the church, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, resisted uh, Luther. And so Luther uh, upped the ante and he began to attack the infallibility of the pope. And uh, as a result of that, uh, the pope issued a papal bull uh, against Luther, not a bovine bull in the streets, but uh, a bulletin, an official uh, bulletin that threatened to excommunicate Luther if he didn't knock it off. And uh, you know what Luther did with that? He burned it publicly. He made a big deal about it, burned it publicly. And so the emperor called for a meeting between the Roman church and Luther in the city of Worms, uh, Germany. And uh, Luther stood alone, uh, well, not alone, he had friends, but he stood against the whole system of the Roman church, which was formidable at that time. It was the only thing that existed. And uh, here's what Luther said. <clears throat> Through the mercy of God, I ask your imperial majesty and your illustrious lordships or anyone of any standing to testify and refute my errors, to contradict them with the Old and New Testament. I am ready, if better instructed, to recant any error, and I shall be the first to throw my writings in the fire. That's what Luther said in response to the accusations that were coming against him. And in response to that, uh, the person in charge uh, the imperial advocate answered, your answer, Luther, is not to the point. There should be no questioning of the things which the church councils have already condemned and on which decisions have already passed. Give us a plain reply to this question. Are you prepared to recant or not? Luther replied, your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and straight. Unless I am convicted of error by the scriptures and my conscience is taken captive by God's word, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe uh, for us or open to us. And on this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And that began uh, a, a, a contest between uh, Luther and the whole Reformation and whether or not uh, how the Roman Catholic Church was going to respond and so forth. Now, after Luther did this, his writings, uh, aided by uh, the recently created a printing press uh, in 1440, I think the printing press was, and this is around, 15, well, this is 1517 and following. Uh, his ideas spread like a California wildfire. I mean, every place that uh, Luther's writings went, it found a receptive audience. People were looking, you know, uh, and, and were ready, it seems. And so every place that Luther's ideas went, um, they found a welcome 
uh, amongst the people. And a renewal of interest in the scriptures began to spread everywhere. In Zurich, uh, a guy by the name of Zwingli uh, was pushing for reform, pushing on the Roman church on the basis of reading his Bible. Uh, In England, a guy by the name of Tyndale, William Tyndale, uh, inspired by Luther, was upset with the ignorance of the clergy in the church. And so he set out, he set a goal, he publicly stated that he was going to work so that every kid who pushed a plow would know more scripture than the clergy in the Roman church. And that was his goal. And so to do that, what he did uh, was he translated into the vernacular, into English, the Bible, so that every common person uh, could read the Bible for themselves. And uh, that was pretty uh, drastic, and uh, he had to do it in secret. And uh, both the king in England as well as the pope and the church were after him, trying to find him. People were paid to try to find him and so forth. But he was able to translate the entire New Testament and uh, many portions of the Old Testament into English before he was martyred. He was choked to death, and then his body was burned at the stake uh, to make an example of him, William Tyndale. He was martyred in 1536. Uh, John Calvin, another name associated with the Reformation in Geneva, took a job teaching theology at a school, teaching the Bible, and uh, sought to make Geneva a Christian city. And uh, the more important thing, though, that happened is as a result of his teaching, he sent Reformed pastors all over the place from that school uh, to begin to have influence in uh, the Roman church. And again, um, in England... Uh, Henry VIII, you probably know this story, Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, and uh, the Pope wouldn't let him. And so uh, in order for him to uh, do what he wanted to do, uh, he broke away from the Roman Church and started what we call now the Church of England, or the Anglican Church. Uh, He wanted Roman Catholic theology, but he didn't want Roman Catholic authority. He wanted to be able to do his own thing. And, uh, but the people were ready for reform and they wanted the truth. Now, I think that's significant because today we live in a day uh, when we think that, you know, anybody who claims to know the truth and then challenges somebody else's perception of what they think is true is seemed to be arrogant today, right? Haven't you been intimidated from time to time to back down from trying to press the truth into somebody else's perception because we don't want to be arrogant or insensitive to other people. And um, so now we've gotten to the point in our culture and in our universities especially where uh, truth doesn't even exist in many people's minds. There is no such thing as absolute truth. What's true for you might be fine for you and what's true for me is fine for me. And so I get a bumper sticker that says coexist. I put it on the back of my car and I don't have to contend for the truth anymore. We just all respect each other's ignorance. And so when you think about this, you know, uh, what if hanging in the balance is really the issue of eternity? What if hanging in the balance between truth and falsehood or lies is really the difference between heaven and hell for all of eternity? What if hanging in the balance between truth and lies is, is, is the difference between having God's blessing on your life and God's acceptance of you or God's judgment against you? How important is it to grab hold of the truth? What if hanging in the balance is the difference between what we today would call fake news 
and truth. Um, one time in um, John chapter 8, Jesus was dealing with some Jewish people, and uh, they had uh, latched on to some tradition. And um, Jesus said to them in John chapter 8, verse 31, um, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What if the difference between truth and fake news is bondage? Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And these Jewish people said, hey, you know, we're free. We're God's chosen people. We've never been enslaved to anybody. And you're like, man, don't you know your history? What about the Egyptians? I think they had the upper hand on you for quite a while, you know, kind of thing. But Jesus goes on, and in uh, verse 44, he says to these people, you are of your father the devil. Where do lies come from? Where do challenges to the truth come from? You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. He has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. There are truth and lies, and they have two different sources. And the truth comes from God, and uh, many people during the Reformation gave their lives, shed their blood to preserve the truth that you and I inherit uh, from the Reformation. Um, and the lies uh, come from our enemy, um, Satan, who is the father of all lies. And so um, it just seems to me that we uh, need to know uh, that for the reformers, nothing could be more important and nothing could be more loving than to contend for the truth with other people, than to defend the truth. Nothing could be more important and nothing could be more loving. Uh, there was no more pressing issue, and I submit to you that you and I have no more pressing issue in our life than to know of God's favor upon us to get the message right. And that's what the Reformation was really all about. There's nothing more important than getting the message right. The gospel of God's grace through Jesus turns into eternal life for those who believe him and trust him. And so I would say nothing could be more important today. Nothing could be more loving today than to contend for the truth and to stand for the truth no matter what the cost. And so the issues between the Roman church and the reformers were foundational. They weren't peripheral. Uh, the Reformation was not about splitting hairs. It wasn't about wordsmithing things. Uh, they were fundamental differences. It was about answering the most important question that you could ever ask. How can I be right with God? It's probably the single most important question that any human being could ask over the course of their lifetime. How can I be right? with God? <clears throat> Extremely important question. And so um, as a monk, Martin Luther, you know, was very zealous, as I said, more than all the others. And uh, he could never find assurance that he was okay with God. And uh, he always felt guilty, he always feared God's judgment. And he was obsessed with confession. And finally, <clears throat> he was sent, as I said, to teach the Bible. And it was during that time in his study of the scriptures, uh, that he um, came to a whole new understanding of the message that's in the Bible from God to us. 
And it was fixed on, um, <clears throat> in Romans, um, Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, were the place where uh, Martin Luther just got stuck. It's like the, through that passage of scripture that God spoke to him. <clears throat> Have you ever had that experience where you're reading the scriptures and all of a sudden one passage of scripture, a verse or two, jumps out at you and you know that God is seeking to talk to you through that passage of scripture? One of the great ways to kind of read your Bible is to just like read a chapter at a time and ask God to, um, you know, jump something out at you that he wants to talk to you about. And, and that's what happened to Luther. And so uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, here's what it says. Paul writes this and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel was good news, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it, the gospel, is the power of God. It, the message of God about Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And Luther got stuck there. When Luther, the lawyer, began to think about the righteousness or the justice of God, the righteousness of God, and he knew that he was unrighteous, he knew that he was unjust, he knew that he didn't meet the righteousness of God, that God had all these requirements and all of this uh, revelation about who he was. And uh, Luther knew that uh, because he was, I think, had this lawyer-like background, uh, that God then, as being just and being righteous, must judge unrighteousness. Just like if you go to a courtroom and you've done something wrong, well, it's the judge's job uh, to punish you for it. So Luther, you know, really struggled with the righteousness or the justice of God. Righteousness and justice, it seems, are uh, somewhat interchangeable. And um, it meant that God had to punish the unrighteousness in Luther's life. And that scared Luther. He could never rest. And uh, he uh, got hung up here, <clears throat> and he hated, uh, he, there are many places where you can read about what happened to Luther. He hated uh, the notion of God being totally righteous and totally just. He didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, because the church had taught him that he had to measure up and he had to clean up his act to qualify uh, for acceptance before God. And then finally, he read, you know, uh, and he put this uh, passage of scripture into a context and um, he read the rest of the verse for in it, in the message from God, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And as it is written, the righteous live by faith. And that began to kind of dwell in Luther's mind. What does that mean? And uh, Luther began to have his kind of aha moment. And he realized that uh, acceptance with God was not a matter of producing a holy life, but a matter of believing that God provided through his holy son this good news, this message of the gospel. Now, if you think that's somewhat irrelevant, I would say to you that if you get in a conversation with any 10 people today and you get the conversation to move around to talk about what do you think happens to us after we die, and uh, you ask the person, well, what do you think is going to happen to you? Almost 10 out of 10 will say, well, I'm going to heaven. And if you ask them why, they will tell you, 9 out of 10 people will tell you because I'm a good person. Because I'm a good person. And Luther was simply honest enough to say, I'm not a good person. 
And he would rack his conscience to try to find out what he did that offended God. And he would come up with all kinds of things, all his thoughts and words and, you know, every place where he fell short. He was just conscious of all of that when he exposed himself to what God uh, revealed about himself until he came upon this uh, statement that the righteous live by faith. And uh, then he would read, you know, Romans 3 and 4 and uh, Romans chapter 4, for example, and in verse 4. Uh, now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, right? But as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. Going all the way back to Abraham and what God said about Abraham because Abraham uh, believed God. And so Luther began to understand uh, that the uh, righteousness, the good news of the gospel, is a gift that God gives us on the basis of Christ and not on the basis of our own efforts. And uh, that was revolutionary. That was at the core of uh, the whole Reformation. And he realized that the work of God uh, is God's work in us on the other side of being justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, and so on. And so God's power is what makes us powerful. It's God's wisdom that makes us wise. It's God's strength that makes us strong. It's God's salvation that glorifies God in us. And it's a gift. Justice or righteousness uh, is a gift. It's imputed. Luther's word was imputed. It's given to us, uh, not imparted. And it got to be this thing between the word impute and impart. Whereas the church taught that God's uh, goodness and grace was imparted to us a little bit at the time so that we could become holy, so that we could qualify ourselves uh, for heaven, which you, then you understand why purgatory would fit into that whole way of thinking. And Luther discovered in the scriptures that that was false news. That was not the message that God had put in the scriptures. And so Luther came to understand that sin is a relational problem, that all sin is against God. And that it separates us from God, but that God did for us what we could never do uh, to fix the rift that had happened because of our sin. God justifies us not by making us righteous, but by declaring us righteous on the basis of what Christ did. Uh, God took our sin and clothed Jesus and allowed him to take the punishment for our sin and then took Jesus' righteousness and clothed us with the righteousness of Christ and declared us righteous. And that changes everything. It changes our status before God. And we become both saints and sinners at the same time. And uh, that was revolutionary. How can I be right with God is dependent on Christ's righteousness, not mine. And uh, righteousness is external to us. It's a gift that comes to us from the outside. It comes to us from God by his grace. It's not about God making us righteous like the church taught through the seven sacraments, but it's about God declaring us righteous on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. Uh, it's the language of the courtroom, not the hospital. It's not that we come to God and he makes us better until we qualify for him. It's that we come to him and he declares us righteous and uh, it changes our status being right with God happens by faith 
or trust or reliance on Christ alone. Uh, faith is just personally trusting or relying uh, on what Christ did. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, you know, are the classic passage that talk about this. Uh, Paul writes to the Ephesian church and he says, For by grace you've been saved, how? Through faith. Through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God. It's not as a result of works so that nobody can boast. It's a gift from God. And that's what Luther discovered. And it comes to us by faith alone. And so um, that was revolutionary and it challenged the church. Um, But the truth is, um, if you count on you qualifying to uh, make your way into heaven... You will never have any sense of assurance that God really has accepted you, right? You, you can't have any assurance because you never know if you did enough. You never know if you made the mark. Uh, and uh, the truth is, the Bible says you'll never make the mark. We all fall short. But the truth is, once we accept this gift of God through our faith in what Christ has done for us, uh, real faith always results in change. It always results in what the Bible calls fruit or uh, love. Um, It's not uh, to earn any merit with God, but it's genuinely a transformation of our lives that enables us to serve other people simply because Christ has met this great need in our life. And so that we are freed, we are liberated. The truth has set us free so that we might, in fact, love like Christ's love, that we might uh, teach like Christ taught, that we might be really the hands and feet of Jesus. And so being right with God frees us from the heavy weight of self-justification, having to justify our own existence. And if you think about it, um, I think that lots of people today live to sort of prove themselves. They're going to prove themselves to God. They're going to prove themselves to their parents who said they wouldn't amount to anything. They're going to prove themselves to their spouse. They're going to prove themselves to themselves. And uh, you can never do that. But lots of people are living just to do that, to kind of establish some identity, you know, uh, in order that they might prove themselves. Trying to prove yourself is the same thing as justifying yourself. What if instead people would acknowledge that we are, in fact, children of God, that we were created by God, that it's God's breath that's in our lungs, and that every day we fall short of what God made us to be? What if we were to embrace the identity that God describes in the scriptures about us and recognize that even though we come up short, God chooses to love us anyway and in Jesus justifies our existence and that we are loved and that we are valued and that we are eternal because God has chosen to love us as our father. And, uh, you know, I think the biggest problem that any of us have is really dealing with the justice of God. How can I be right with God? And here's the good news that got lost in the church and became something other than the good news that it is. And uh, the truth is you either allow Christ to take uh, the hit for you or, um, or you take it yourself and you try to justify yourself before God. And that never works. In um, Matthew In Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 11 um, and verse 28, uh, you remember Jesus said this, 
He said, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are tired of trying to justify your existence, come to me and I'll give you what? Rest. Rest. The truth will set you free. Uh, you are favored by God. Uh, God loves you and God has provided for you in such a way. Jesus says, look, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Hook yourself up to me like a yoke, like a oxen, you know. You put yourself in a yoke with me. Tie yourself to me and learn from me. I'm gentle and uh, I'm lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that was the message that got lost and uh, got lost in the church. And that's the message that the Reformation brought back. How can I be right with God? I can trust God's gift to me in Jesus Christ of his favor on my life. Great hymns came out of the Reformation. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. Uh, another great hymn, um, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? My hope is not built on my efforts. My hope is not built on belonging to a church. My hope is, not, my hope is built on nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus and his righteousness. And so the first big movement of the Reformation was the reclaiming of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. A second big uh, movement in um, the Reformation, and again, still is an issue today, is uh, you might say an answer to this question, how can I hear from God personally? Will God speak to me? Can I have a personal relationship with God? How, how can I uh, hear from God? And uh, the Roman church, again, um, claimed the right to interpret scripture. So it was always scripture plus the church's interpretation that created authority for the Christian life. Uh, but what happens when scripture disagrees, okay, with a tradition that the church embraced, like the issue of purgatory? Um, if Jesus really did away with all my sins, what's purgatory? Well, it's a lie. It's coming against the good news of the gospel. If, like the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord, what's purgatory? Well, it's a lie. It's false news. It's not the truth. <clears throat> and this is what was recovered um, as a result of, again, the Reformation, uh, these negations of the gospel. And so the Reformation was also about sola scriptura, or so, uh, solo scripture, scripture alone as being the authority for the Christian life. Really what the Reformation did was dethrone the Pope and enthrone the scriptures. That's really what happened over the course of the Reformation. Um, so um, still today, however, Roman Catholicism in their catechism, um, and let me just uh, read a quote here. Um, this is from the uh, catechism that's still used today. Um, the church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. But Scripture and tradition 
must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And then it goes on in the um, catechism and says, the task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the pope and the bishops in communion with him, period. So Luther responds to this, and here's what Luther said. He said, I opposed indulgences and all the papists or popes, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with Philip and Amstoff, his friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. That was Luther's response. And uh, when you think about that, really what happened is that the pope got dethroned and the scriptures got enthroned as a result of the Reformation. And again, the church resisted uh, being changed uh, by the scriptures or by uh, the people who were pushing for reformation in the church. And uh, here again, um, a passage of scripture that I think you're probably familiar with, Hebrews uh, 4, 12, and 13, for the word of God is living. You know, the Bible's not like any other book. The word of God is living. God speaks to us through the scriptures. It's alive. It's not like any other book. The word of God is living and it's active. If you will allow the word of God to get into your heart and soul, it will be active in you. It will transform your life. The word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and uh, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God is able to penetrate down into the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and to change us and to transform us if we simply allow the word of God uh, access to the core uh, of our being. And so um, <clears throat> the whole idea of um, uh, the true church um, was uh, maintained by uh, the Roman church uh, through um, institutional continuity. In other words, uh, Peter was the first pope. The church would chase its history all the way back to the apostles. Uh, Peter was the first pope, and then everybody from there, you know, they could trace their history all the way back. But what the Reformation did was redefine the true church as that church which was true to the gospel, not to institutional continuity, but gospel continuity. Uh, the church doesn't find, define the gospel. Uh, the gospel defines the church. Uh, John Calvin, I think, put this the best. He said, the difference between us and the Papists uh, is that they believe that the church cannot be the pillar of truth unless she presides over the word of God. We, on the other hand, assert that it is because the true church reverently subjects herself to the word of God that the truth is preserved by her and passed on to others by her hands. You see the difference, right? The church, the Roman church thought that we needed to, 
to have authority. We needed to preside over the word of God and define it and interpret it and so on. And John Calvin said, no, just the opposite. We need to subject ourselves to the word of God. And that's what gives the church its true authority. It was just the opposite. So the infallibility of the word of God, the Bible, overtook the infallibility uh, of the Pope. And um, people learn that God speaks through his word. And, you know, that's important for us today to understand, too, because today a lot of times people think that, uh, you know, God speaks through my experiences more than he speaks through his word. And uh, I constantly have conversations with people, and I go, where'd you get that idea? Well, you know, this happened to me, and that happened to me, and this person said to me, and that person said to me, and so that's why I think what I think. And I'm like, well, you know, the word of God says something other than that. Maybe somebody's putting some fake news on you. Because the good news of the Bible is very different uh, often than our experiences warrant. So the second big issue was scripture alone was the authority for the Christian life. The third uh, issue, a third issue that uh, was brought up by the Reformation, um, a big issue, and I think it answers this question. If I put my trust in Jesus, what will happen to me? What will be my experience? If I... If I trust Christ, if I put all my trust on him, if I recognize this message and I embrace this message with uh, all of my heart and so forth, what will uh, the experience uh, of God's presence be in my life? And I would suggest to you that what the reformers did was rediscovered uh, the essence of grace. Your experience when you trust Christ will be the grace, the undeserved favor of God coming into your life. It'll be the experience of God loving you without reservation, in spite of all the things you know that are wrong with you that God shouldn't love you for. And uh, the grace of God was redefined, if you will, uh, by the Reformation. Grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone. Uh, Salvation, you know, um, is not for the person who does much, but for the person who believes much. And that belief then transforms us by the very grace of God. Uh, You will experience the undeserved favor of God. Uh, It's not relying on God for assistance, but relying on God completely. The Roman church taught that grace comes into our lives so that God can assist us to help us become better so that we qualify for his acceptance. Grace, on the other hand, as a result of the Reformation, was uh, people came to understand it as um, God's free gift uh, to us that transformed us. In uh, Matthew's gospel, again, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus made an interesting thing, a statement. He said, um, go and learn what this means. Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. Um, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call righteous people, but sinners. I didn't come to call people who button themselves up and find, you know, think that they're acceptable. I came to call sinners. I came to give my life. And uh, Luther puts it like this. Here's a quote from Luther. Uh, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. 
And therefore, sinners are attractive to God because they are loved. They are not loved because they're attractive. Now, just think, we spend our whole life trying to be attractive, right? We work so hard at trying to be acceptable and so forth. And God says, no, you'll never make it that way. Um, We always fall short of what God called us to be. And uh, it's grace alone. It's my undeserved favor alone that will transform and change your life. Um, Instinctively, uh, we become self-dependent, and yet we know that we can never measure up. And so the good news, the message of the gospel, is that when we are Christ-dependent instead of self-dependent, our status uh, with God changes. And again, uh, the context where Luther was in Romans chapter 3 and verse... um, Uh, 23, for all have sinned and fall short. We all come up short of what God created us to be. Fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. It's the only way you can have God's grace and God's favor is by accepting it as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation Uh, by his blood, and so on. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Um, And this was the context in which Luther began to recover uh, the great message of the Bible, salvation by faith alone. Grace is the personal kindness of God uh, that doesn't just enable us to do better, but completely saves us, the means by which God gave himself to us um, as our Father. Jesus is full of grace and truth, and so to receive grace is to receive Jesus. Salvation by grace alone is another way of saying salvation by faith alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone. Uh, They are the same. They come to us in the person of Jesus, and that changes everything. It enables us to have a God-first life. Salvation by grace alone is a way of salvation by Christ alone. One more passage of Scripture. Uh, Titus kind of sums this up. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while at the same time waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Can I tell you, grace really is the only message in the entire world of liberation and of freedom. And for anybody who knows they've failed and fallen short before God, grace is this gift that God gives us whereby we can establish a new victorious life in Christ. Um, These three non-negotiable absolutes that salvation is by faith in what Christ did, not in ourselves, that it's based on God's word alone, and that it comes to us by God's grace alone. 
I'm so excited that tonight the choir has prepared for us a service of reflection. And we're going to sing those great old hymns, uh, and we're going to work our way through some of the scriptures that uh, were key to the Reformation, uh, and that many people, again, shed their blood and died so that we could have uh, this great heritage that's ours through the scriptures. And so I know it's supposed to rain a little bit this afternoon, but, you know, we're Baptists. And so, again, I would hope that you're not afraid of a little rain. And uh, we will have valet parking for you uh, this evening. So looking forward to being together and continue thinking about the Reformation tonight at 7 o'clock. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you're such a faithful God. You're a father and you do everything we need. You're a perfect father. And Father, we know it didn't come free. It came at the expense of Jesus and his blood shed on Calvary's cross. And when we think about this period in, in the history of human beings, and we think, Father, about how your message was almost lost, how fake news had replaced good news of Scripture. And we thank you, Father, for these men and women uh, who uh, rediscovered your word and put their lives on the line to defend it and who uh, recognized, Father, how important the truth really is because it is the truth that sets us free. It's the truth that recreates us in Christ. And I pray that we, Father, would follow in their train and that we too would not be afraid to contend for the truth, that it, we'd understand it's the most loving thing we could do as we, Father, live in a day and an age where truth is being belittled and set aside. May we, Father, be uh, courageous and bold and take our example from Luther and, and some of the other reformers, uh, that we, Father, would stand and, with you and uh, be champions of your word. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. <laughs> 